station, but we're here for a real education. Welcome to A Real Education. We are once again outdoors on a beautiful summer afternoon in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Enjoy the sounds of cars passing. It's just one of the many services we provide. <laughs> I'm your host, Tim Wick. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Melissa Kersher, who is a movie just total complete nerd. <laughs> Hi. And yes. Jenna Young, who is a nerd but not about movies. Yay! So, and uh, we are here at the Trilon Movie Theater once again for a live showing. Uh, We are going to be watching Metropolis. Yay! So, as always, we're going to listen to that lovely bass going by right now. Man, we got a boom boom. Bow, bow, bow. All right. So, uh, with that, that's like a tie-in, right? It is. It is. Kind of is. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Jenna, I would love it if you could tell us what you personally know about Metropolis. What I have heard about Metropolis is that it is, uh, it's a silent film, okay. um, which really excited about the live music today. Uh, and then it's, uh, kind of science fiction-y, um, like somebody said it was like, like what set up science fiction. Uh, okay. so right. as a nerd, I'm really excited about that. Um, and then uh, it deals with like humanity, social aspects, something. Mm. So humanity, social yeah. aspects, something. Yep. Yes. There you go. All, All right. right. So uh, we'll talk a little bit in a non-spoilerish fashion about Metropolis. Uh, I think before we start, it's really clear to uh, you need to understand there are a lot of different versions of Metropolis out there because this is a very old film. And uh, over the years, they have slowly been acquiring bits and pieces of this movie and working it back into the completed version. We'll talk a bit more about all of that later. Um, What we uh, we've what we from what we've gleaned of the version of the film we're watching, Melissa, why don't you? I I will field this. So the the original cut of the movie when it was premiered was about 153 minutes long, mm-hmm. and since it was funded by three different companies, two of them from America, you know, when they started uh, trying to export the movie out of out of Germany, they wound up whittling it down to like 153 minutes and then like 90 minutes, and it just kept getting cut down and cut down. So vast portions of the movie were considered lost for a very long time because all these scenes were cut out. Yeah, and when they cut them out, it's not like they saved a negative with the full film. They no. just tossed out the chunks they no, cut out. they the had movie. a partial, you know, when people started restoring it, there was like a partial negative still in existence and a few incomplete copies, but no complete version of the movie. So... The hair looks nice. Thank you. So the, <laughs> I just got complimented on my hair, listeners. Um, but yes, there's. But very slowly, um, over the last 30, 35 years or so, there have been massive efforts to track down the missing footage. So while in the eighties, Gregorio Moroder was trying to reconstruct most of the movie, all they could find was about ninety minutes and then in the early 90s there was this reconstruction with which built it back up for an, another few minutes and they were fighting a few minutes here a few minutes there there were there was a major discovery where it got up to about two hours and that's the cut we are going to watch tonight is the two hour 2002 restoration 
there was another major discovery very recently in 2008 in Buenos Aires, which restored almost every single piece of missing film, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in a less than ideal way. And that is on a 2010 DVD that you can get from Kino very easily. And that is a fantastic as, version of the film. So and it's if as you are, close to a complete version yeah, of the film yeah. as you can find. There are like probably. two scenes missing and that's it. Maybe 10 minutes missing tops. But so if you're listening at home and wondering which version to watch, I would highly recommend the 2010 Kino release with all the missing footage. It's not what we are watching tonight, but you will get the as close to a complete experience of Metropolis as you can possibly get. Yes. But we, tonight, as Jenna pointed out, we're going to get to watch this with a live band, yes. three-piece band, performing a soundtrack. I don't know if it's original or if they... It is original. It's original. So that that's always fascinating to see what a, a band will do, given the opportunity mm-hmm. to create original music for a silent film. Uh, it is a silent film, as Jenna pointed out. So it's kind of our, our little silent film uh, mini mini thing here with having just done mini section <laughs> having, yes. having just done the general it's directed by Fritz Lang and he's a very important name when we're talking about the dawn of filmmaking mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sure we'll get more it in more into what he did and why he's so important after we watch the film mm-hmm. so is there anything else that uh, you think we ought to tell folks before we uh, tell them to turn on their their DVD players and, and watch the movie no I think they're good all right. Well, we'll be back after we enjoy Metropolis. Welcome back. We have just finished watching Metropolis here at the beautiful Trilon Theater and a few folks, it was a sold out house for this show, and a few folks have stuck around to uh, talk with us about the film after it's done. But first, as is very important on our podcast, we have to get the opinion of Jenna, who, as always, is a first time viewer of this film. Jenna, what did you think of Metropolis? I need to see that film about 15 more times before I can even start to look at all of the bits and pieces of of symbolism and and, and, and concepts and the mushing. <laughs> There's a lot of mushing in the film, yes. <laughs> heavily, heavily mushed throughout. Yeah. Um, okay, so 15 more viewings. And yeah. uh, as we discussed earlier, this is not a complete cut of the film. And uh, they, they mentioned that in the subtitles. And there is a newer cut of the film, which has approximately... 15 more minutes of footage? 25, 25 more, minutes. more minutes of footage. Yeah. So the, the the newer cut of the film is a was kind of cobbled together from the footage you saw here tonight and a print that was found in Buenos Aires in 2008. Uh, it, it's actually kind of an interesting print in that um, Buenos Aires actually got a full cut of the movie when it first traveled outside of Germany and they made their own copy of it on nitrate film, which is highly explosive if you have seen Inglorious Bastards anytime recently. <laughs> and um, so, for a matter of safety, in the 1950s, this film museum that had this print transferred it to 16 millimeter uh, on cellulite film, which is you know, much less dangerous to store. But unfortunately, they did it wrong so that the gate that they used to transfer the film, the original film, to the 
or the first copy to the second copy was gated wrong. So there's actually like a little bit of the top and a little bit of the side of the film missing. So it's not the best print. But uh, they've been using it as kind of a loner copy here and there out of Argentina. And um, in 2008, they got comments back from somebody who had borrowed the print and said, that was really long. I was really surprised how long it was. And went, oh, that's interesting. I, the only known print that we know of Metropolis is a little over two hours. And this guy is saying it's, this one is two and a half hours. That's very interesting. So they sent it to some experts, and it turns out it is a complete copy of the film, albeit imperfect. So what Kino did for the full cut is they went in and took the bits that were still missing out of this imperfect print, restored them the best they could, and then kind of inserted it. So it's kind of a, a film lover's copy because yeah. it's kind of disconcerting to watch because when the, the footage is really different when it pops up when you do watch the full cut of the movie. And it's really, it's, I, I mean, it, yeah. uh, for all the work they did, the restoration yeah. work is remarkable, but it's, it's still, amazing. it's very scratchy. You, there are parts on the side and the top that are cut off, uh, but there is, that is the only complete copy of the film. Well, there's still uh, a few minutes left. Close there are like to two complete. scenes missing, but we're within minutes worth of like what was originally considered the original cut of the movie which is a place I never thought we'd be when it like in the 90s when it was first now if we could just find London film. after midnight everybody would oh be yeah <laughs> that and that's an entire movie that's yeah missing. that's an entire but I, I mean and that's a th something that uh, is true of a lot of film from that era we don't have very much of it right. because nobody thought about film as being something that was worth preserving at the time that they were making these movies. And they knew very little about how to preserve it in the mm -hmm. first place. So these films are kept in less than stellar conditions and some of them just plain rotted away. And, and some uh, of them blew up because of the nitrate. And, and some of them blew up. And <laughs> some of them were yeah. used to kill Hitler. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Noble cause. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> in the Quentin Tarantino alternate universe version of Hitler. But yes. Nonetheless, so let's talk a bit about this movie and, um, you know, we talked about, you, you mentioned, Jenna, at the beginning that, that, that it was kind of, you heard that it was kind of like the first science fiction yeah. film, which is basically true. Basically, this film creates a language for science fiction film that's going to follow. Yeah, there, there were elements of, sci of science fiction film in, in earlier movies, like uh, Lumiere Brothers did From the Earth to the Moon. Sure. You know the very famous uh, image of the moon with a rocket in its eye and and all that. That wasn't the Lumiere was, brothers. That was or uh, Millet. Millet. Yeah, Sorry. George Millet. Uh, I know better. On it. I've seen Hugo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you for correcting me, Tim. My pleasure. But uh, yeah, yeah. Th this was kind of the big introduction to the concept of a robot. Yeah. In film really it, that was kind of a unique concept I think I think there was a book that uh, introduced the concept of an Android before this but this you know clearly the the robot is really the iconic image that most mm -hmm. people have there was a play by a guy named Capek yes that's right um, there were but adding machines yeah. yeah that was I think that predated metropolis oh yes yes I do know it does but uh, so uh, things like the mad scientist trope, mm -hmm. uh, Rotwang uh, is one of the first times you're going to see that character. And you will see that character again and again and again in film after this. 
the Doc Brown. The, the yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's he's Doc Brown only completely sinister and yeah. messed up. Yeah, uh, Einsteining Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the special effects in the movie are are just amazingly ahead of their time when you think about right. it. When you think mm-hmm. about some of the special effects you see in in films in the fifties, mm-hmm. compared to what he does visually in Metropolis. Uh, he also used what, how many thousand people? Uh, the highest number I've heard is 37,000 people as they, extras. Just a ridiculous yeah. number it's of extras. Some way to small country with I know, right? It, it, yeah. it, it was somewhere in between 25,000 and 37,000 people as extras. You could populate it's a small ridiculous. country with that. <laughs> the, the movie was made for 5 million Reich marks in the Weimar Republic, which today translates to about $200 million. And at the time, it was the most expensive film ever made. And adjusted for inflation, it's close still. Yeah. Uh, so. How much did it gross? Uh, the it question was, actually, was, how much did it gross? Yes. Uh, it not very, not as much as hoped. Um, a part of the reason why it kind of got chopped up on its initial distribution and whittled down to a much trimmer size uh, for going out of the country was because it did not make as much money as hoped. Um. Let's see. What was I? What was I going to mention? I want to get through a couple other details. So you know, you've got all these people there. There's some incredibly iconic shots from this movie that you will see again and again. The the robot is is one of them. Melissa is actually wearing that shot on her shirt. Slightly, slightly bastardized for convergence. Yes. <laughs> but uh, the the workers going in and out at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film, which. Uh, is really clever because they don't tell you which shift is going into work and which shift is going out, except by the way they walk, where the people walking in are walking double time mm-hmm. yeah. compared to the people walking out. And that's how you that's how you as the audience are given to understand. And the way he uses visual language to really communicate to you where these char- where these different groups of people are. Uh, is is pretty remarkable, and he uses these mass groups of people moving a lot, mm-hmm. and and I think it also lends that that also helps lend itself to um, people creating new scores for it, as we saw tonight with uh, Fugitive's wonderful performance. Yeah, it, it's this is a movie I've seen many 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 times, and I think every single time I've seen it has had a different score, and you can put a vast array of music over this movie and it still works just because there's there are so many visual elements that lend themselves to to dance and rhythm and it just naturally lends itself to there's uh, a version that was yeah. made in the 80s which yep. has a fascinating soundtrack which is uh, <laughs> it's kind of terrible it, and wonderful at the it, same it's time ki- it's kind of well, crazy it's right? well, yeah, but oh, yeah. I mean, it was, and they got 80s musicians to Create songs for this thing that's sort of, and it's like Loverboy and Pat Benatar and Freddie Mercury and, and oh yeah, it is the most eighties things you've it, ever seen in your life. And then it's they astounding. they also they also colorized it a little bit. Yeah, um, the 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 driving force behind that that version was Gregorio Moroder, who was a David Bowie collaborator, if I remember right, and he did a lot of his own compositions over the film, as well as getting all these pop artists to do songs over it. And um, even though it doesn't quite gel together, it's kind of a hot mess. Yeah, it doesn't. It, it doesn't it, make it, any it, sense it, at all. Yeah, it, because it's a 93-minute cut of the movie, which is everything that existed at that time. So what you just saw here was uh, more than half an hour longer yeah. than what 
he had to work with. And that 90-minute cut didn't include any title cards that explained what yeah, was missing, so there are a lot of really <laughs> illogical jumps in the movie. Yeah, and he didn't use title cards for the dialogue, uh, opting instead of going with subtitles, but it was really important in that it was one of the first major restorations of the movie, and it got eyeballs on that film that would mm -hmm. never have ordinarily seen that. Uh, so we have an audience member with a question or comment. I'll remind you to speak up a little bit so we can catch you in the microphone. Talking about colorization, where is Ted Turner when you really need him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Moroder print was interesting in that um, it wasn't like hand colorized completely. No, it was but like the would, entire screen would be tinted one color. And they did which, some a couple yeah. of weird like psychedelic effects at a couple of yeah. times, if I remember correctly. Well, I've only seen that print still once to cover some mm -hmm. of the action. Yeah, they yeah. Had just when that film began, when Moroder began getting mm -hmm. his group together, they discovered or whatever there were stills yeah. that they used. You're right. To, yes. To Make the transition a little smoother. They would. They would. Yeah. They did use some stills from missing portions of yeah. the film. Yeah, and you saw some of that happening in this print yes. tonight, is particularly with the statue of hell and yeah, exactly. yeah. They replaced what they could with stills. So we have another question so or comment. Guys, so you're saying um, I didn't I missed it. Um, uh, they said there was a complete print discovered in Argentina. Yep. Yes, Buenos Aires. Yes. Does yeah. this, this include stills? This was no. not. This print. was prior to that. This is the 2002 restoration that was done by the F.W. Murnau Foundation in right. conjunction with Kino Films, which is very nice. And I, I think we got this one because I don't think the Buenos Aires print version had a 35 millimeter print struck. We actually saw this off a of 35 millimeter film um, tonight. What's the word on the it is available. You can yep. go out and buy it right now on Blu-ray. And it is beautiful. And I own it, and it's one of my favorite discs. It's, yeah. It's strongly, wonderful. Strongly it, recommend. It also has a whole bunch of documentaries and background information on the DVD. It's it's a film lover's dream. It's beautiful. <laughs> so comment in the back. Remind you to speak up. The restored version is available streaming on Netflix right now. That is oh, true. The restored, yes. the restored version is streaming on Netflix. I think wow. that's where I watched it, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so if you don't want to buy the Blu-ray, although the Blu-ray has a lot of great extras. Oh, the, uh, the extras are invaluable. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, did someone uh, write a score for music to accompany this originally, and was that a common practice for some Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes and yeah. yes. The, the original score was uh, written by Gottfried Huppertz, I believe it was. You're looking at uh, me like I know. Gottfried uh, <laughs> <laughs> Huppertz. And um, the Kino edition, both this one and uh, the new one, have the original score as an option to play along with the movie. And it's very Wagnerian. It's yeah. this big, you know, just big, wonderfully yeah. bombastic so film talk, score. We talked about beautiful. this on our last episode about the general. Oh, you want to say something? Oh, well, yes, please. Yes, yeah. okay. I, it's not just you two. Come on. <laughs> I, I really, I, I love having the idea that there are different scores and different ways of interpreting this music that, or the, the movie that come across in music. I, I love the, the idea of that being a singular experience to that audience and that group and and what they're mm -hmm. doing. I, that is so fascinating and wonderful to me. Yeah, well, we talked about this in the general that, that yeah. typically, especially for like the premiere of big films like this, there mm -hmm. was an orchestral score. There would be a full orchestra. If the movie was playing somewhere like Radio City Music Hall or something yep. like that, there might be a full orchestra that played uh, for every showing of that film. For the smaller theaters, there was usually a pianist, and often there would be a piano score 
that the pianist could work off of. But a lot of them, even smaller, wouldn't actually get that even that piano score. So the pianist just kind of made it up as they went. Yeah, uh, and, and they, they often had cheat books where it's like, here's the song for when the villain comes in, and here's the song for the the, the happy reunion of the couple, and they just kind of use that for every every film that they got. Yeah, so uh, there there were but but they were silent films. It's interesting when we talk about silent film, we assume that they were meant to be watched without sound, and that's not true. Mm -hmm. uh, they were intended to be watched with sound, but that sound was provided live, as it was tonight. I mean, mm -hmm. this is exactly, you know, it's not the score that was originally written, but this is exactly how you were supposed to watch these films, mm -hmm. was with a live musical performance in the theater with you. And, and before we move on, I want to do a quick plug. Uh, there's another version of the various cuts of Metropolis uh, featuring, that you can get from the Alloy Orchestra. And Alloy Orchestra actually does some of my favorite silent film scores ever. They, they did uh, uh, Man, uh, Man with a Movie Camera and uh, Metropolis and the, God, the Man Who Laughs, I think they did. But they do just wonderful modern scores for silent films. And we had a hand in the back. Yeah, yeah so what was going on when this was, go when this was being written? Like, what Ooh. was his idea? Oh. <laughs> and this was in, what, the 20s? Well, this was 1927. It was, so the film was made in 1925. Okay. So what was going on? So, uh, this was... What do you want to do? Yeah, this was the middle of the uh, Weimar Republic. And I'll back up a little bit and start out by talking about uh, Fritz Lang a little bit. Uh, Austrian man who was born to a Jewish mother who converted to Catholicism, which means he was not the favorite person of the Nazi party who was coming to uh, power kind of during this time very slowly. Um, fast forward to making of Metropolis, he, his frequent collaborator in writing for many of his films that he made in Germany was Thea von Harbo, his wife, who was also an early supporter of the Nazis. So, Fritz Long wasn't necessarily a really socially conscious man. He, he kind of saw Metropolis as kind of a fairy tale, and he was kind of the driver between the, the head and the hands and the heart thing. And Thea von Harbo was much more politically active, and that's where she was working in a lot of the, the social commentary. And, um, let's see, kind of lost my train of thought. About where, oh, yeah. where oh, I was going to go into... Uh, the the story was actually first released as a novel by Thea von Harbo, which was released as a serial um, prior to the release of the movie. She wrote the novelization with the full knowledge that it was eventually going to turn into a screenplay and then a film. And so, you know, this was Weimar Republic. It, um, the... Uh, the government really didn't work very well for the people. There was massive inflation. Um, it was it was, you know, really ripe for uh, party as extreme as the Nazis to come through and eventually take over in 1933. And then an interesting uh, addendum to that, you know, a few years after this film, um, Fritz Lang uh, was horrified to find out that this was a favorite film of Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels. And eventually in 1933, he was called into Goebbels' office. 
and Goebbels essentially offered him the position of being like the head filmmaker for the Nazi party. Which would be great if he wasn't Jewish. Well, yeah, and he, and he said, you know, that, that's a problem, and, and Goebbels basically said, well, Hitler and I decide who's Jewish. Basically giving a, a pass, and he was so horrified that he basically sold off his wife's jewelry and left for Paris that night, and he got the hell out of Germany. He, he left his wife and just everything. And then, so he stayed in Paris for a while, came to the U.S., started making films here. And he's a he's a very important filmmaker uh, in yeah, terms of extremely. just imaginative filmmaking in in terms of breaking in, in I'm much of the same as George Melia in breaking films out of a literalist kind of perspective. And I'm trying to think of other films that Long made and um, um, well, yeah, yeah, his, M, German, M. his German films were like M and the, uh, Dr. Mabusa, The Gambler, and Siegfried. And then he came mm -hmm. over here and started making stuff like Scarlet Street with uh, Edward G. Robinson. Robinson and <laughs> it, yeah. Now I'm going to go blank. So yeah, me yeah. too. Did he, did he do Caligari? No, he didn't. Okay. It was offered to him, but right. uh, right. they, they that was Renault. Yes, it was Murnau, my bad. No, it wasn't. Oh, no. No, it wasn't. I don't know. Who remembers who made Caligari? All right, Shout wait. out. <laughs> Nobody remembers. It was 1919. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, hand in right here. Yeah, I was actually going to say, I found this quote by Fritz Lang mm -hmm. about Metropolis, and um, he told this to Cahiers du Cinema in 1965, and the quote is, I've often said that I didn't like Metropolis, and that is because I cannot accept today the leitmotif of the message of the film. It is absurd It is absurd to say that the heart is the mediator between the hands and the head. That is to say, of course, between employee and employer. The problem is social, not moral. And I think, you know, that does kind of, um, that does kind of, um, like, okay, you see the big struggle, this big, huge, massive struggle. I mean, you see this, you know, almost breakdown of society. And when you think about it, I mean, the idea that, you know, this this huge, massive, unleashed social uh, clash can somehow be bottled back up into a handshake and a message, mm -hmm. it comes off as a little... Um, yeah, I think that the, the, message, the message of the film is the workers can be exploited as long as there's somebody to make it okay with them. Uh, or yeah. so it would seem. That's that's what the mediator, mediator's job is basically is to say, well, you know, it's kind of your thing, right, guys? Mm -hmm. So let's all be good with it, huh? Yeah, it, let's all go have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> His is going to be more expensive, but we're all going to have a beer. It's going to be fine. I mean, um, I mean, for for the for when you consider the the poverty of the 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 sociological poverty of the message, I mean, he did a very good job with the kind of ultimately, and you have to remember that. You know, he was living in a capitalist society, and I mean, whoever financed his film, they're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna give him two hundred million Reichmarks to say that no, the capitalists are not needed anymore, and you know that they need to be gotten rid of. I mean, be like asking the Confederate slaveocracy to say, hey guys, you want to make a film against, you know, say, say, you know, calling for the overthrow of the slaves in the South, of right. the slave owners in the South. Yeah, there were three different studios involved in the production of the movie. Two of them were American, and uh, I can't remember. Uh, Universum Film? I can't remember uh, who the producer was inside Germany, but also MGM and I think Paramount got involved in funding. And 
yeah, there was a lot of big money fed into the movie. So yeah, it's there. There's a lot of we'll take conflict one, of philosophy. We'll take one more <laughs> comment and then we'll offer a few final thoughts. So yeah, what right here? Um, I know that this movie has been around in many, many manifestations with lots of different soundtrack. My brother, I swear to God, this is true. He has a version with a the Bonka Donka 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 soundtrack stuff. Like a, like a cheesy porno flick. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yes. I watched that, my insides just began to crawl. But do, you, but do you think that the fact that it is so open to interpretation that it has lasted as long as it has? I, th- I think because that's I a think, big part I think of the it. flexibility of it kind of mm-hmm. gives it a little extra edge and a little more of a chance to be to be memorable. Memorable. Remembered. Thank you. Yeah. I, I think there are a few yeah. things. I think uh, one of the reasons it's remembered is because visually it's very iconic, yeah. and because it does establish a great, great many tropes that we're going to see in science fiction filmmaking, mm-hmm. moving forward from that point. It's a maverick film in terms of visual effects. I mean, all uh, so many of which you remember, they, they basically had to do it in negative after the f- after the film was made. Mm-hmm. So they're altering the negative to make these special yeah, effects yeah, later. Yeah, so, like, yeah, the, yeah. Like when the robot is being irradiated. That's, yeah, that's that, that is double exposure inside the camera. Yeah. Yeah, there were shots, like especially with the eyes, uh, looking at the fake Maria in the club. Um, there, there are shots where they double exposed over 30 times. They just would mm-hmm. reverse, rerun the camera, uh, the film in the camera, and then expose another part and rewind it again, expose another part. And but then, the, their electrical yeah. effects where it wasn't even double exposure, it was basically altering the negative to create yeah. to create the special yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of techniques that, that pretty much got created for this movie because that was the only... So, so it's notable for that, I think... Any silent film, the beauty of silent film is any silent film, different music can really change your interpretation of the mm-hmm. film. Um, Metropolis certainly lends itself to even more different interpretations than a lot of other uh, silent films. But Phantom of the Opera is another great example of a movie that you could watch, and, and the, the music that accompanies it can completely change mm-hmm. uh, how you view that film. <laughs> um, so, we're going to, I know there are a lot of comments, but we're actually getting to the end of our time, so we should move to wrap up so Melissa any final thoughts about Metropolis on your list of Metropolis trivia um, no I think I'm pretty good that's just the weirdest thing ever oh, no, I, I, I got to talk about Nazis and we're all good <laughs> Jenna do you have any final thoughts on Metropolis that actress was amazing oh Wasn't yeah she great holy crap I, oh. I mean setting aside the whole uh, Madonna Horror thing that was going on um, what? The what? Yeah, no, the way, the, her physicality and the way oh. she represented that, it looked like two different people. Mm-hmm. That It was fantastic. Birgitta Helm had never acted before. Mm. Yeah, she was 19 years old, and she went through hell making this movie because Fritz Lang was famously very, very hard to work with, and... Um, 
like she, too. yeah and uh she she was actually in the robot suit and it would cut and pinch and bruise her it was it was apparently just horrible to wear she was in it for days and she was in the water and, and she was in the water that. which it, which was freezing with about a thousand wayfish children that they found in the slums of berlin at the time <laughs> and yeah yeah it would and oh and when when she was being burned at the stake that platform was on fire, meaning Brigitte Helm was eventually on fire. Like her dress caught fire, and oh wow! Yeah, just what crazy, crazy stuff. <laughs> she got paid um, well. <laughs> <laughs> she probably did not get yeah. paid well. Uh, so my final thought is number one to say thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this has been a real education. Our next podcast, our podcast go up on the first and fifteenth. Our next podcast after this one is going to be Ed Wood. And uh, our next show at the Trilon is not yet scheduled. It will be in uh, October, so check out the website, realedu.com to find out that information. Thanks so much for joining us, and good night, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our film fixation. We'll see you next time on A Real Education.